All right, open your Bibles, Romans chapter 7. Last week, we went through the first three verses here in chapter 7, which, if you remember, was an illustration that Paul had given in preparation for what he was going to say in the following verses. Now, from our mindset uh, from the 21st century, we probably did not need uh, the illustration, but yet in the first century, about 25 years after Jesus' time on this earth, the subject of God's law was certainly an issue of debate. You see, many Jews had come to faith in Christ, and they did not quite understand how the law of God fit in. From their perspective, the law of God was their standard for living, their entire lives. Everything revolved around the law of God. To them, it was God's moral standard for anyone who wanted to follow him. And therefore, for someone to even imply that the law had been set aside, even if it was the Apostle Paul, they would instantly have questions, if not concerns. Well, unfortunately, there were always false teachers around to enhance those concerns and tell them that, well, you know what? It's really those church leaders who were the problem. Even the apostles, they would say, didn't understand God's use of the Mosaic Law. Take your Bibles real quick, if you would, and turn back to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This, is, uh, this chapter here, part of it anyway, or if not most of it, is describing a meeting that took place that is typically known as the Jerusalem Council. If you ever hear that term, the Jerusalem Council, it goes back here to, to Acts chapter 15. And the reason this council, this gathering of church leaders happened in the first place is stated in the first two verses. Notice he says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers that unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, after the apostles and the elders met there at the church in Jerusalem, they met to discuss this whole issue about the law, Peter decided to stand up and say this, starting in verse 7. He said, brothers, and he says brothers here, he's talking to his Jewish brethren. They were believers, but they're Jewish brethren. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did us, us meaning the Jews. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, 
Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? That yoke, by the way, was simply the law of Moses. Okay? He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so here the question was answered. The gospel is the same for the Jews as it was or is for the Gentiles. The Mosaic law has no place in the gospel message. The gospel of grace is just that. It is grace. Well, if you think that council, it was a pretty big to-do in the early church, but if you think that council took care of it all, Think again, because false teachers, especially on this subject matter, okay, they did not give up that easy. Matter of fact, just a couple of years after uh, the Jerusalem Council, Paul had to write a letter to the church in Galatia uh, because there was a group there, we know them as the Judaizers, but there was a group there uh, that had duped the church. They had duped the church into thinking that Paul's gospel was incomplete because they still had to obey the law of Moses. Well, if you want to know Paul's true feelings on this, turn over to Galatians chapter 1. The book isn't that long, but if you ever want to go through the whole book, it deals with this very issue of the law versus grace. So, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, starting in verse 6, he's he's pretty strong here. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. The word deserting there, it literally means to change, as if you change sides, okay? I'm, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, he says, which is no gospel at all. Keep that in mind, folks, when somebody wants to add to Jesus Christ and his work. It is no gospel at all. It's, it's not. Matter of fact, he goes on, he says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So think about that for a second. If you want to add anything, I don't care what it is, to the work of Christ, it is a perversion. Okay, let's be clear. Paul was so focused on this, adamant, he says in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be, the Greek word is anathema, let him be eternally condemned. Wow. That's pretty harsh, right? That's what was going on in this church. They were teaching a different gospel. They were adding the law to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Well, sadly, even though Galatia is not too far from Colossae, they must have forgotten Paul's message because in his letter and writing to them, writing into the, to the church in Colossae, the same subject was brought up yet again. Once again, folks, this was going round and round in the first century. He told them in chapter 1, he said, guys, He says, Christ has canceled the written code. Okay? He nailed it to the cross, Paul said, to the church. 
And therefore, he said, don't let people come to you and judge you by what you eat or what you drink or uh, judge you based on a religious festival, a new moon, or even a Sabbath day. He says those things were a shadow of what was to come. The reality, he says, is found in Christ. All those things were based on the law. If you weren't doing those things, they were judging you because you weren't following the law. He just goes, those were a shadow. They were foretelling of what was to come. Christ was the, the reality. Once Christ came, those things can be set aside. Well, as far as the Jewish Christians here in the church in Rome, things were no different. They were confused. They didn't quite understand how or if the law fit in to their relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Paul, here back here in Romans, Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 28, he said that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Okay? He made it crystal clear that salvation is not through the Mosaic law, it is by one's faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, three verses later, chapter 3, verse 31, he says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? And Paul says, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So here, Paul is saying that even though the law does not save anyone never has it still has a role to play god still uses the law it has a purpose it just doesn't save anybody okay well if you're thinking like a jewish believer who's who's probably young in their faith that might have been a little confusing to them matter of fact paul himself really knew this already and so he went ahead and he asked the question that he knew some of them were thinking when they read this letter, he knew some of them were going to think this question. And so he, he wrote it down himself in chapter 6, verse 15. He said, Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Because that's the thought, right? What you, well, if we're not under the law, are you saying, Paul, that we could just live in sin? He knew they were going to think that. So he asked it himself. And, of course, he answered it too and says, Absolutely not. No. Therefore, here in chapter 7, Paul has decided to explain to them, since they have died with Christ, and you might remember our study there in, in the chapter 6, verses 2 through 7, okay? Since they have died with Christ, they have died to sin, they have died to their old life, and yes, they have died to the law. And so in preparing them for this, just to help them to understand this, he tells them in the first three verses here in chapter 7, and he, he uses the law of marriage. It's a very, very simple illustration. He uses the law of marriage. Right? The law, he says, keeps the husband and the wife bound together in marriage unless, he says, one of them dies. Okay. After that death, if one of the, the, the husband or the wife dies in that marriage, Paul says the other one is no longer under that law, the law of marriage. Okay. So once again, when death happened, that contract, that law was done. It was set aside. 
Okay? Verse 2, it says they were released from that law. Okay? Well, Paul is going to use that as the very foundation for what he's about to say right now in verses 4 through 6. So if you're there, read with me those three verses. He says, So, or therefore, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So coming off of the illustration, and we looked at that last week in verses 1 through 3, but coming off of this illustration of the law of marriage and how if one dies, the other is released from that law, and if they so desire, they can remarry. You see that in verse 3. Okay, So Paul is saying, take that, apply those principles to, to life in Christ right now, he says. Okay? As a believer, as somebody who was Jewish, a Jewish believer, take that right now, that very same principle. And so he begins here in verse 1 by saying, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Right? So he's coming off that illustration about death, right? Releasing from the law and so forth. He says, well, you too. You guys, too, have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, there are a few things here that I want to mention uh, from verse 1. Number 1, he says, we died through the body of Christ. Now, as you guys know, they, nor you and I today, we did not physically die, but we did die spiritually speaking. Okay, The physical death was through Jesus Christ. He died for us. Jesus died on our behalf. You and I know this as the substitutionary atonement. Okay, When he died as our substitute, it was as if we died. Okay, When Jesus died, it was as if we died. Matter of fact, right here in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, Don't you know? That all of us who were baptized, that just simply means to be immersed, okay? For those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, look what he says, were baptized or were immersed into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Christ died, Christ was buried, and rose again. And as believers, he's saying we were identified with him. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross and he ultimately breathed his last, it was just as if we did. 
okay? God accepted Jesus' death as if we ourselves were dying on that cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He bore our sins in His own body. Okay? His suffering for us, His suffering being applied to us, would be sufficient to meet the demands of the law. By Him taking our place, we were released from the law by way of justification. Okay? We were freed from the penalty of the law. So in application, just like in the illustration in verses 1 through 3, through death, we are no longer bound to the law. That's what Paul's point is here. And therefore, we are freed from it. Okay? Our death, we died with Christ. Right? Through the body of Christ, it says. Our death that way released us, he says, from the law. Now, going back to the illustration in verses 1 through 3, the woman in that illustration, the wife, if you will, was married, and through death, through the death of her husband, it says, she was allowed to remarry. Once again, you see that in verse 3. Take that, now go into verse 4. We just discussed the death that we died through Christ, and now Paul says, we can belong to another. Did you catch that? Just like the illustration from the woman, once her husband died, once death happened, she was able to remarry. Here he says, once we died, same situation, right? We belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So he's telling these Jewish believers, and he's telling ultimately all of us, but he's telling these Jewish believers, you were once connected to, you were once married, if you will, to the law. But since you have now died to the law and are therefore no longer under it, okay, you were, for lack of better terms, remarried to the one, Paul says, who was raised from the dead, which we know as Jesus Christ. Okay, just as verse 3 said, we now belong to another. Okay, I hope that makes sense as you're thinking of the woman whose death, she's able to remarry, she belongs to somebody else. Through death, he says, you also belong to another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so through our death, through Christ, like the wife of the deceased husband who is now freed from the law of marriage, these Jewish believers are no longer bound to the Mosaic law and are completely free to move on into that next relationship. And just like you and me, that relationship, that marriage is to Christ. I should remind you of something. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. Who's the church? Us. Sure it is. Thirdly, and this is the reason, okay, still in verse 4, this took place, Paul says, in order that we might bear fruit to God. This took place in order that we, the believer, might bear fruit to God. Now, just ask yourself 
what is your ultimate purpose on this earth? Why does God leave us here instead of bringing us to heaven, our eternal home? <laughs> I'd like to be there right now, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm kind of tired of this whole sin thing, including my own. But why? Well, I'm sure you've heard this before, and I will say it again. Mark just hit on it over here. The chief end of man is to do what? To glorify God. We do that through our lives, don't we not? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. I just discussed that, right? He was our substitute. But he says, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Did you catch that? Notice that we have a responsibility there. Ephesians 2.10 for we are God's workmanship. He says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Ecclesiastes 12, 12 and 13 puts it this way. Now that all has been said or now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter, he says. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. <laughs> Folks, we belong to Christ. Okay? As verse 4 says back here in Romans, that we might bear fruit to God. Right? We would simply call that practical righteousness. Us bearing fruit to God, us glorifying God, is in reality just through practical righteousness. And here's, here's a couple of verses that really just says everything. Philippians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. This is Paul's prayer for the church. He says that it would be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, listen, filled with, here's that word fruit, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's like both those verses has everything I just said in them. I could have just quoted it and said, amen, let's pray. Some of you who are hungry would probably like that. We have this relationship with Christ in which God, as you know, has given us his Holy Spirit so that we, through him, through his spirit, are able to produce that fruit. That fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit of the spirit, right? And by the way, do you know what the end of that verse says? Because we always stop. We quote, we quote those and we stop right there. The very end of that very same verse says, against such things, there is no law. You're going, wait a minute. Wow, I didn't know that. Because nobody ever reads that part. Against all those things that I just said, the fruit, there is no law. In other words, when you live that kind of life, the law isn't necessary. You don't need a life when coming out of you is the fruit of the Spirit of God. You don't, I'm sorry, you don't need a law. Whew, you caught that. You don't need the law 
when coming out of you is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, at this point in the text, in verse 5, Paul is going to stop for a second. And he's going to go backwards in time. And he's going to remind, uh, remind these people of their former life before they knew Christ. In other words, these Jews back when they were under the law. Okay? So he's going to back up a little bit. Okay? Look at verse 5. He says, for when we were, it's past tense, right? Paul includes himself, because as you know, Paul was a Jew, right? Paul says, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. So before Christ Paul describes them, and really all of us, as being controlled by their sinful nature. Okay? Now, some of you might have the, tra- who has the translation that says, called controlled by the flesh? Anybody have that? We have one honest person here. Okay, that's, that's nice. Okay. We have two honest people. Oh, there's three. Anybody else? Do we have, I see three. Do we have four? No, I'm just kidding. They're all just picking up on this. It has the word flesh instead of the word sinful nature. The word flesh, just so you know, is only described in two ways in the scripture. First, of course, is our physical bodies, which we all understand that, I'm sure. Okay. But secondly, the word flesh uh, is meaning, uh, is talking about the controlling passions and the tendencies of our corrupt nature. When you typically hear the word, the flesh, outside of our physical bodies, okay, as he's using it right here, it has an evil connotation, which is why the NIV describes it as the sinful nature. It's the flesh. Okay? Matter of fact, right here in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 9, Paul presents living in the flesh and living in the spirit as total opposites. Okay, just so you know, living in the Spirit, living by and through the power of the Holy Spirit is the total opposite of living in the flesh. Walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh are diametrically opposed to one another. Matter of fact, you can go back there if you'd like, but back in Galatians, you were already there, so I know you know where it is. Back in Galatians chapter 5, this is why I read for you or repeat quoted for you, the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But there he talks about walking in the Spirit, and therefore, when you walk in the Spirit, by the way, you produce the fruit of the Spirit, okay? But before that, starting in verse 16, he says, I say to you, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Listen to what he says. For the sinful nature, the flesh, is what that says in some of your Bibles, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But he says if you're led by the spirit, oh, hey, looky there, you're not under the law. Catch that? But verse 19, he says, the acts of the sinful nature or the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, and he goes on and on and on. 
Those are the acts of the flesh, the sin nature, right? And he goes on and talks about the acts of those who walk in the Spirit, which is the fruit of the Spirit, okay? So, but dealing with that sin nature, dealing with their flesh prior to their relationship with Christ, they were literally the embodiment. They were the, the walking and breathing representation of sin. Go back and read Romans chapter 1, and you'll see it. It lays out a list like, like it's nobody's business. Matter of fact, Paul mentions right here in Romans chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he mentions how we were all slaves to sin. Remember that passage? You are a slave. You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. You are a slave. They were a slave to sin. He said they offered the parts of their bodies to slavery, to impurity, and to ever-increasing wickedness. Huh. Now, we all know, as we have studied before, that every one of us was born with a nature to sin, right? We all know that, right? We were born with a sin nature. Therefore, it's why we used to live that way, okay? Because we're born with a sin nature. But Paul said there's also another reason here in verse four. He says, because the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. Catch that? The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. So besides living in our natural state of sin, for those who happened to be living under the law, the Jews, before they came to Christ, right? Those natural impulses were kicked up. As Paul says, they were aroused by the law. Kenneth Wiest says the emotions or the impulses of sin are stirred to activity by the law. Paul himself, right here in verse 8, Paul himself, right here in verse 8, spoke of his past life, and he specifically mentioned the commandment, do not covet. Okay? He said this commandment, the commandment to, to not covet, he says it produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Did you catch that? Paul said, I had a desire to covet because I was told not to covet. As MacArthur points out, he says the law in declaring what is wrong also arouses evil in the unregenerate person because his naturally rebellious nature makes him want to do the very things that he learns are forbidden. I've said this before. I sometimes I say it jokingly. But let's be honest. No one here takes a walk in the park and touches every bench in the park. Put a sign on the bench that says, do not touch. And guess what happens next? You guys know the answer, don't you? Mike, you're going, yeah. We know what happens, right? Wet paint, don't touch. Somebody's fingerprint's going to be on it. We know that. As we'll bring up in verse 7, not today, but as we'll bring up in verse 7, Paul says, does this mean that the law is sinful? And of course, the answer is, of course not. A holy law. Law does not cause sin. 
It's the sinful passions within us that are stirred up when we are told not to indulge ourselves in certain sin. It's just who we are is ingrained within us. When the law says, if you will, don't do this, it urges us to want to do that. I see kids do it all the time. Their parents say, don't do this. Well, now I want to do it. See, all you moms are going, amen. Even a few dads out there. So having the law, as Paul said at the end of verse 5, we bore fruit to death, he said, for death. Now this, of course, as you could probably see, is a contrast of bearing fruit to God, which we just saw in the previous verse. Now he says, under the law, we bore fruit to death. Okay? Now obviously, fruit to death is simply a lifestyle that is producing a sinful existence which, which we have, which I should say will have its day on, of eternal judgment in death. It's the fruit that for death. It's consequences of the indulgences of one's passions. That's the consequences. Spiritual death. I always remind everybody of that. It's not physical death because we're already going to die no matter what. Christian and non-Christian, you're going to die physically. He's talking about spiritual death. That's the consequences it is eternal judgment. Matter of fact, Paul says right here in chapter 6, verse 21. Paul asks this question. He says, What benefit did you reap at the time from those things you're now ashamed of? Did you read it? Did, did you read what were those benefits of living in sin? That all those things you're now ashamed of as believers? Did you reap anything? Were there benefits yet? And what did he say? They resulted in death. Death. Interesting, he uses the very same word. Now, going into verse 6, Paul brings them back to the present. He brings them back to the present and he says this. But now, right, so we're back to reality here. But now, by dying to what's once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So Paul brings them back to where he started, and that was dying to what once bound them. Okay, And therefore, he says, releasing them from the law. Now, we already talked about the concept of dying in verse 5 about how we're being released from the law, so I'm not going to go over that again. But don't forget the word here that Paul uses. He uses that word bound. He says, when you live under the law, you are bound. Okay? The, the ESV translates it, you are held captive. The New Living Translation says, we are no longer captive to its power. Uh, in Kenneth Wiest, in his Greek translation, he says, we were consistently being held down. That's what the law, we're consistently held down. Or as the other one says, we're held captive. See? 
In other words, to go along with the previous verse, the law, even though it is holy, it appealed to our sinful nature in a rebellious way. In a way that ultimately was a curse to you and to me. The law was meant for good, but it, 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 it sparked, it aroused our evil within us as we already went through. But it was a curse to us, and that's where we thank the Lord because Galatians 3.13 says Christ released us from the curse of the law. And remember, as we discussed just the past few weeks, being under the law, what it does, it shows us in a, in a constant fashion, but it, it shows us that we are sinful people. That's what the law does. Not only was it God's holy standard for Israel, Israel was to be separate from every nation, but it was also there to reveal to us that we are sinful. I mentioned before, Galatians 3.24, it was used to push us to Christ. It was used to show us we're sinful, we need a Savior. And that very same verse says, and that Savior is Christ. And it's by justification through faith. So the law had a job, to do. And so did faith. The law revealed to us that we're sinful in need of a Savior and we're justified by faith. And now in closing, Paul tells them clearly, because we have died to the law, still in verse 7, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. We know, folks, what being under the law, the written code, we know what it does. We just spent time talking about it this morning. But now he says, having died to the law, right? As you know, we're now a new creation in Christ. We also have a new nature. But God, as he says here, has given us his Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, he says you're not of Christ, period. But God has given us his Holy Spirit and he uses him to empower us to live a life of obedience. Giving someone the law doesn't make them live a life of obedience. It just shows them they're sinful and they fall short of it. But now as believers, not being under the law, he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live the life that he's called us to be, to do. The law has no power to give us life. Do you know that? The law has no power to give us life. The law has no power to bring about a sanctified existence. The law does not make you holy. Okay? It can't save you. It can't sanctify you. Period. Folks, the scriptures are very clear. Besides the entire book of Galatians, if you want to read that, if you want to write down a couple verses, there's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. There's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Romans 6, 14. Right here, our text this morning. Chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Also in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. And there are many others. That's not exhaustive. But it tells us very clearly we're not 
under the law. Paul himself, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee. He says, in, I can't remember which one of those, he says, I myself am not under the law. There's so many people, today even, I told you how this went on and on and on through the first century. Today, folks, a couple thousand years later, people still, there are those who profess to say they're believers who still believe they're under the law. Well, you know, I say, look, there, there are 613 commands under the law in the Old Testament. 613. Do you obey them all? No, people pick and choose things. Ten Commandments or food or whatever, or the Sabbath day, right? They pick and choose. Well, what about the other 600? See, we're not under the law. That being said, let me just separate that before we close. The Old Testament was written to who? Israel. Christianity didn't come until Acts chapter 2. The Old Testament was written to the Jews. Christians were never under the law, ever. <laughs> but for those who were under the law, the law was separated. There was the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and, and for some, the judicial law. It's all under the auspices of the law of God. The moral law of God, listen, that doesn't change. Because when somebody says you're not under the law, oh, you can just live in sin as if God changed his mind? Yeah, you can, not, you can now lie. Go ahead. It's no big deal. No. God's character never changes. God's nature never changes. The moral standards of God never change. Ever. So the moral law of God, you see it carried over into the New Covenant, into the New Testament. Okay. Matter of fact, the Ten Commandments, nine of them, don't lie, don't cheat, don't covet, don't commit adultery, all, all of those are found in the New Testament. Those are moral laws. Those don't change. You don't find the Sabbath because the Sabbath has been fulfilled. Okay. Nowhere are you told us to obey the Sabbath. It's been fulfilled. Matter of fact, we're, we're told in Colossians 1, don't let them judge you by a Sabbath day. It's no more been fulfilled. Our rest is in Christ. So when we talk about not being under the law, nobody here says, you know, I can't eat pork. That would kill most of you people here, you're bacon freaks. But, but and, and how you dress, right? All those certain little things you saw in the Old Testament. We don't, we don't, we don't, do, we don't live that way. So we're not under the law in that sense. But the, the moral standard of God never changes. So always bear that in mind that, as it says numerous times, if you wrote those down, we're not under the law. We live by the Spirit of God. Okay? The law helped us. The law showed us we're sinful, which helped us to see we need a Savior, and that's Christ. We've, we've come to that point. So I want you to understand that just as we close. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time that we can uh, look into this today. We thank you for this passage. And, uh, and Lord, we know that, I, I mean, I can truly understand in the, the first century how people who grew up uh, under the Jewish uh, religion, under the Jewish belief and traditions, I can understand how 
when they came to faith in Christ, they, it, was, it was different. They didn't know what to do. or Did, did they blend together? I, I understand how it was different. But Lord, uh, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that they were given your word, even back then, that they would understand they are no longer bound by the law. They can live freely in Christ, but yet under the power of the Spirit of God, so that ultimately by the Spirit of God, they will fulfill the law, hopefully. Living by your Spirit, you will not lie. You will not covet. You will not cheat. You will not murder. You will not commit adultery if you are empowered and walking in the Spirit. But what you will do is you'll have the love, the joy, the peace, and so forth. Help us to see this, Lord. Help us to understand the truths of the Scripture that we as believers will never think that we're still bound to that. So, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given us. You didn't just leave us by ourselves to fail. And thank you for your word to teach us these very principles. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.